very warm welcome to our online viewers, and thank you for logging in for today's Science AAAS webinar entitled, Put Talent First, Practical Steps to Eliminate Gender Bias in Science. I'm Shirley Malcolm, Head of Education and Human Resources at AAAS, and it's my pleasure to be the moderator for this webinar. Thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's webinar. I'd bet that the majority of those viewing the webinar are women. But this is not a women's issue. This is an issue for science. Part of what I expect we will address today is getting men as well as women to own the challenge of eliminating gender bias. Very recently, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine released a consensus study report entitled Sexual Harassment of Women, Climate, Culture, and Consequences in Academic Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. There is no way that we can talk about steps to eliminate gender bias in science without confronting this topic. This is, in so many ways, as they say, the elephant in the room. But we want to address many other issues as well, including strategies for inclusion, expanding the vision for what excellence in science looks like, and addressing systemic barriers benign seeming policies or practices that have exclusionary impacts. We have a great panel here today to discuss these topics. Dr. Kate Clancy, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, who served on the Academy panel that I mentioned before. Dr. Anna Hahn of the National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Isabel Collette of the University of Geneva. I'd ask each panelist to take about two minutes to tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do, especially your research interests that are related to gender bias in science. Doctor, <laughs> you want to start us off? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Malcolm. Um, like you said, my name is Kate Clancy. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois. I run a feminist biology laboratory, and we are broadly interested in looking at the ways in which stressors affect women's health. Um, and as you might imagine, negative workplace experiences are a pretty big stressor, and we do a lot of work on sexual and racial harassment. Uh, we have two main field sites with a number of pretty esteemed collaborators. One is on field experiences, and that's with the survey of academic field experiences. We have two publications in 2014 and 2017, and then another project looking at uh, the experiences of women in astronomy and planetary science. Um, and we have one publication so far uh, that looks at the experiences of women of color specifically. And as you might imagine, women of color experience the most harassment, followed by white women, men of color, and white men. Um, the, there, the ways in which uh, sort of these intersectional experiences um, sort of form the foundation for these later experiences uh, or these, these later intentions to leave or um, types of work withdrawal that happen to women are a big interest of mine. Dr. Hahn. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Anna Hahn. I am a senior behavioral scientist at National Institutes of Health. I am in scientific workforce diversity. My main role at NIH is to really focus on evidence-based approaches to um, enhance diversity and include social inclusion in uh, biomedical workforce, especially scientific workforce. Our office is currently leading along with Dr. Valentine. Um, 
ways to really uh, measure sexual harassment and its impact on women in science specifically, but overall how is harassment in general impacting people's careers. So we are really looking into that and you'll see that forthcoming from NIH. Um, I am a social psychologist by training and in my former life I was an associate professor in the psychology department and my research mainly focuses on implicit bias, unconscious uh, me uh, measurement, uh, implicit measurements and kind of attitude and attitude change. Dr. Collet. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. So I am Isabelle Collet, I'm from the University of Geneva. Um, I have a degree in computer science, but I didn't find an interesting job in this uh, area, so I moved to sociology. And now I'm working in an education department about gender uh, and education. My, my um, research interests are about uh, gender in science, technology, mathematics, and especially IT. And uh, I, I am a part of the committee, I serve in a committee for the first Congress in Europe against uh, gender violence and sexual harassment. It was last December, and we had a very large audience, so it's a proof for us that it is a very important topic, and there is a, a growing awareness about this subject and a, a very important need also. And uh, now I'm working about the strategy of inclusion for women in higher education in IT and how to transform the institution to, to include women and, now, and know how to uh, adjust women for an institution uh, which don't really want to accept them. Thank you. Uh, it's funny, you know, I stumbled in the beginning and largely that was because um, I felt like I needed to call you Dr. Clancy, Dr. Han, Dr. Kulik, because in many instances that we are in other kinds of settings, one of the ways it kind of feels that people deprofessionalize us uh, is to refer to themselves by professor and then call you by your first name. Now, uh, I have doctored you all the way through, but I'm going to move to first names now because this is a very personal kind of a, of a conversation that I'd like for us to have. But, uh, you know, I, while we notice this, there is actually research that says that I'm not crazy when, I'm, when I've had this experience, right, yeah, Anna? Yeah. So there's a, a lot of research in this domain. Uh, perhaps biggest uh, research and kind of the model is a stereotype content model by Susan Fisk and colleagues. And what she really shows is that people fall under kind of the two domains like this. So you're either competent or incompetent or you're warm or cold. And what research shows that if you are of the majority um, dominant group, you can be warm and competent. So you're in that quadrant. But turns out for women or people who are not in the majority group, you can only really be one or the other. So. The assumption for, in terms of women, is that we are nurturing, right? We're warm, and you know, as you start to show competency, you lose that warmth variable, so you kind of move to the axis. And you probably have seen lots of um, women, very competent women, being called names, you know, IC, yes. et cetera. And it's very hard to do both, and I think that's a problem in terms of so. The default assumption is warmth, and what we try to do is show competence, but then there's a kind of the balance we have to play with that. Yeah, it, but that makes it kind of hard to navigate. 
Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm a basically friendly person, so are all of you. <laughs> and But when you're in those kinds of settings, uh, you're kind of put on the spot. Uh, you're of, with regard to how you feel as though you are being, are projecting yourself and how you are being um, perceived by others. Sure. And you know, I would I would maybe add that, um, and I and I think this is in line with the research too. That you can correct me, Anna, if I'm wrong. That it's not just that um, it's it's not that our behavior is necessarily changing, right? When we're walking into a room and people identify us as female, um, they're going to assume we're warm. When if and when we re reveal ourselves to be competent, that's when suddenly the designation warmth goes away. But our behavior hasn't changed. Right? It's not that we suddenly have become icy. It's that the perception of our behavior has become icy. And so that's what I find so difficult about this tightrope is that so often the recommendations for women in science, when people point out the leaky pipeline or the chilly climate or whatever metaphor they choose to use, I actually kind of like gauntlet. Um, when people think about these different metaphors and try to say, well, what to do about women in science? Uh, it's always directed at the victim or directed at the women having the experiences mm -hmm. when the reality is it has actually almost nothing to do with our behavior but perceptions of whatever we're doing. Right, and this is one of the things that I wanted to uh, ask Isabel about because it isn't just walking into a room. It's going online. <laughs> and uh, I completely agree with what you say. and. We speak about stereotype, and we have to remember that um, the stereotype are not the cause, but the consequences of an unequal system. Because uh, when you have an unequal system, when you think women value less than men, you have to justify it, and you have to usually refer to nature and uh, invent a nature specific for women, which explains that women are less many things, and for example, uh, more emotive, more sympathetic, and we, uh, while men are more, I don't know, uh, logical. And then we attach science with logic and not science with uh, emotion. But um, it's wrong. Uh, first, there is no proof that we don't need emotion in science. Uh, there is no proof you can't <laughs> be both. I mean, logical and sympathetic. And finally, uh, when you think it's a question of women, that means women are a bit responsible of what's happened to them. So we speak about self-censorship, for what so-called self-censorship. But as you say, uh, we don't change. We have the same behavior all along. But uh, it's the system who put us at disadvantage, and not us. We don't have the, the right behavior to, to, uh, to move into a scientific world. We've also mm. often talked, uh, those of us who work on kind of diversity and inclusion issues, we often talk about all of the efforts that are made to fix the women as though there's something wrong yes. with us. Right. But you know, we encounter this through, uh, through our education. We encounter it as we are getting letters of recommendation. We encounter it as we are interacting with people. So it kind of goes, this is a theme that kind of runs through. And then when you're su suddenly situated, for example, as a faculty member in a department, uh, guess what? Your teaching ratings are lower. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, so it just kind of follows you around. Uh, that, that makes it very, very difficult to address. So um, there is research in resume studies, for example, where they send out two identical resumes, one either female name and male name, and you know they're equally qualified because it's identical resume, and you find that 
both men and women faculty members and other individuals rate the women's resume, you know, not as qualified, less likely to hire them, and actually offer lower salaries. So this is pretty strong evidence that there is some kind of systematic bias that we need to kind of correct for in the insidious, this underlying kind of layer. And, and women in that study, this is Moss Rakusen's work, mm -hmm, yeah. and in that study, the women were rated as more warm. And, uh, yeah, and they're and more likable. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's even though these were just resumes. Like, mm -hmm. how can you tell whether someone's likable from a resume, right? But they, <laughs> yeah. were, but they rated women more. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, we're a faculty member in a department, and we are getting lower teaching evaluations predictably. Mm -hmm. uh, we are uh, trying to do our work uh, and do our career-related things. And then there are these expectations that we kind of keep our personal lives to one side. While the men are praised for having their kid pictures up, you get dinged for having your kid. There's something kind of off about this. I mean, there's, I'm sure, actually, you two can probably speak to this better than me, but um, Anna and Isabel, but I, I'm aware of some research around, you know, men being viewed as breadwinners, and so therefore when they bring some of their family commitments to work, that's a good thing. That's a reason for giving them a higher salary. I had a colleague who used to always joke, he would go in and, and push for higher salary, and he'd always just say, my kids need new shoes. <laughs> I could never get away with saying that when asking for more salary because the research shows that when women dare to uh, bring up family obligations, that's going to that's going to make things harder for them. Mm -hmm. There's Marianne Mason's work that shows that men with children are the most likely to be tenured, yes. and women with children least likely. Yes. Right. Um, but maybe you two can speak to more. In France, we had a very interesting study done by Catherine Marie about um, um, the impact of, um, of uh, children on the career of women. And in fact, if women have or have not children, it has an impact, an impact. Because even if they don't have children, the institution supposes they will have, and it will, it will be a problem. Yes. So. Mm -hmm. You have, you don't have, it's wrong. Because if you have, you are supposed to spend all your time taking care of your children and not taking care of the institution. So when young women ask me, when, when it is a good time to make your, a, chil a child, <laughs> I answer, anytime you want. Mm -hmm. For the institution, it's never the good time because if you don't have, uh, you are a threat because you're going to have one. So it doesn't change anything. But in the same study, we notice that the more men have children, uh, the more their career advance, um, because usually their wife uh, stop working and take, take care of the children. And it's really, really easy when you have somebody at home to take care for everything while you are working. Okay. All right. Why don't we go to our first question? Because uh, we've heard of, the, of our, we've talked about some of our problem areas, but you know, there may be places out there that are different. Okay. So the first question uh, that we have, uh, do you feel that there is an environment of support for women in your department or institution? Uh, yes, no, or I'm not sure. Okay, I'll read that again. Do you feel that there is an environment of support for women in your department or institution? Yes, no, or I'm not sure. So while we wait for this to come in uh, and listening to what our viewers have to say about this, um, 
what does it what does an environment of support actually look like? Hmm. Um, I have a couple first thoughts about this, and I'm I'm, I'm wondering about your experiences too. Uh, to my mind, part of it is, uh, and this is coming off of the National Academy of Sciences report that. Um, I helped write with, you know, almost two dozen other esteemed colleagues. So I am just a small cog in that uh, really Im impressive report, I think, um, is one of the things that we talk about is the importance of leadership. And leadership is this word that I think we talk about, but we don't really know what it means. But I, I, we tried to concretize it a little bit in the report around um, not just explicit policy, but um, real moves towards culture change through consistently um, showing through like multi levels of support that you would like to have more egalitarian, you know, more a more egalitarian culture. So some of that can happen through better sexual harassment training. For instance, uh, we recommend bystander training. In fact, compared to the literature, does not support the online sexual harassment training that most institutions do. Um, moving away from a culture of compliance towards a culture of change. Um, but what other what other things do you guys think? I think in numbers really matter. So in terms mm -hmm. of cultural change, you yeah. don't want to isolate that one person. So you don't want to be the only female or person of color in the department because mm -hmm. you have issues with tokenism and isolation. But uh, so the leadership really matters because what you want is you want to change the culture by really changing the numbers or what the faculty makeup looks like. But in relation to that, I think transparency also matters, right? So a lot of negotiation, hiring processes, startups all happen in secret and you find out later that your colleague is making $30,000 more than you. So kind of the transparent process also, I think, reduces sexual harassment, all these other issues, but it really kind of opens up the environment for equity and fairness for everybody. I work in IT. And you know in IT, women are about 12%. So you speak about numbers. Yes, it is a very big issue. And um, of course, I totally agree what, with what you said. But in IT, first, uh, I'm not against quota. Uh, because uh, we have to realize that now the most affirmative action is for uh, white middle class men. And um, when, I, I don't, uh, when I give a lecture, with uh, in uh, IT department, uh, I have 90% of men for about 10% of women. And I say, assuming there is no uh, IT DNA or no IT gene <laughs> and no pink brain, uh, who are the 40% of men who are here thanks to women discrimination? Who are the 40% of women who are not here for reasons which are nothing to do with their skill with their talent, but only with their gender. So, uh, if you want to do if you want to do something quick, uh, we have to put a quota, and then I guess we going to increase the excellence of the department because we uh, we we stop wasting talent. Right. It's interesting. Let's talk about excellence for a moment, and that is that you know there's a lot of research now that talks about the the excellence that comes from diversity. And uh, having too much of the same, basically, I mean, because this is this question about how, what do you think the quality is, mm -hmm. is a huge issue mm -hmm. for us within the sciences. And if quality gets kind of a male, white male yeah. stamp, then that becomes a problem for the rest of us who are not that. <laughs> this is the fight that I feel like I have when I give these talks quite a bit, is that I will end up with 
if any white men show up to my talks, mm -hmm. then usually the question that they jump up and ask is, well, how do I end up with the best students? And how do I end up with the most excellent when I point out some of the problems of, uh, of the way that we currently, uh, just the, the, the way things are right now. And um, usually what I come back with is, well, how do you operationalize best? Because if the dominant cultural group is the one who's been operationalizing best all along, then the people who we define as the best workers, as the best students, as the best scholars, are going to look like the people who are already in power. And that's how we perpetuate white men as the, as the definition of scholarly excellence, um, instead of all these different ways that scientists can look. You know, and not just in terms of how we physically look, but how we think about our scholarship right. and how we present it. Right. And science is moving in more kind of interdisciplinary uh, domains. So yes, you may recruit that best student, but as we move on and work together in an interdisciplinary way, things change. So there is actually evidence, bibliometric evidence, I think it's Freeman and Huang's paper that showed ethnically diverse groups. So they just look at the last name of ethnicity, that they tend to be cited more. They also are uh, published in more higher um, uh, impact factor journals. That's bibliometrics not, is not all end all be all, but it seems to show that these diverse groups tends to do better. So yes, if you want a highly cited, high impact paper, try to go for you know diverse <coughs> individuals. And they have similar studies showing same thing with the gender effect, right? So the right. gender um, diverse groups also tend to do better okay. as well. Okay, the results are in, people. All right. <laughs> Uh, for our first question, do you feel that there is an environment of support for women in your department or institution? 41.4% said yes. 17.2% um, said no. And 41.4% said, I'm not sure. And I think that there's something actually quite telling in that I'm not sure. Like, how do we know it? What constitutes it? Uh, this, I think that that, that that is actually a really important statistic. So I think this gets at the issues of kind of the implicitness of these biases because you're not sure because you don't see the, so you may notice explicit biases, but maybe you don't talk about your salary or your startup package, so you actually don't know that you're at a disadvantage to much further down the road. And I think that's probably the insidious effect of all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, support, yes, but is the support efficient? We can do many advertising support, but in fact doing for real nothing in the institution. So yes, maybe we have picture of women of the world. We say we want more women on the board, but uh, are we really doing something? So sometimes there is a support, but there is no real action to follow this support. It's interesting that you would say that we are at AAAS are just starting this, uh, this project, really inspired by the uh, Athena Swan project in the, in the UK uh, called Sea Change, where it, it offers an opportunity for institutions and departments to have a voluntary rating system. But basically, after going through a self-assessment, that begins to look around these issues of support and around the issues of what are your numbers actually look like? Who's in your departments? How well are they doing? And really uh, have a kind of a metrics-driven way to maybe answer some of these questions that, so you can move away from kind of like, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. all right? Uh, and I, I do think that there, that there is an, an opportunity for us to really think very differently about 
how we operate within this kind of uh, scholarly environment. Certainly. Yeah. One of the things I'm excited about in terms of the way in which I think Sea Change is trying to learn from Athena Swan, though I think Athena Swan also has a lot of potential as a, as a good tool, mm -hmm. is that, um, again, we're, we're trying to focus on culture change and actually right. moving the needle around people's behaviors um, in the workplace. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, as, as someone who studies sexual harassment, um, what not a lot of people realize, one, is that a majority of women in the workplace experience sexual harassment. But that, you know, of the, say, on average, somewhere around 75% of women who experience it, about 90% of that, of that harassment is gender harassment. Gender harassment are the put-downs of sexual harassment, and, and um, the other forms of sexual harassment are the come-ons. Those are those Harvey Weinstein things that people like to focus on, the unwanted sexual advances and sexual coercion. But gender harassment is being sabotaged. It's putting up pornographic imagery in the workplace. It's outgrouping. It's excluding women from an email. It's paying them different. Uh, well, that might also fall into broader gender discrimination categories, but it's, it's these little instances of making women feel like they don't belong um, that contribute to an overall culture. Yes. And if we do not, and so the thing is, is if 75% if of women are experiencing it, if 90% of those women, it's put downs. Is it really gonna make sense to just have a policy saying, don't do that? or create a punitive legal uh, sort of system that tries to individually handle cases with perpetrators because the problem is just far too big. And that's why moving towards a system of um, victim-centered uh, like victim-centered ones, that uh, restorative justice is one option, but I think there are a lot of different ways you can think about it where we're broadening the conversation so that people are really um, coming, up, coming up with best practices within their workplaces, mm -hmm. coming up with codes of conduct that also identify the positive behaviors as well as sanctions yes. against negative behaviors. I think that starts to move the needle so that you know, because I think all of us can describe experiences of harassment at this point, and all of us can probably describe times that we've caused harm too. So if we want to get rid of those moments of causing harm, we have to really broaden our perspective and stop relying on policy and, the, and a fairly inadequate legal system to handle the really broad cultural issues that are facing us. Let me take a uh, question from the audience, <clears throat> because when you were talking about kind of cultural change, change and really trying to send different kinds of signals. Uh, the question here is, what role can science societies play in supporting women in the sciences, both in academia and industry? So societies, I think, have a really interesting effect. So I'm gonna stick to sexual harassment for a second. So one of the big issues that we've been kind of debating is conferences organized by societies that we know that especially for graduate students students this, there are disproportionately high incidence of sexual harassment during conferences because maybe their people are going out to have drinks afterwards etc so I think a lot of the societies can bring some of that to the forefront and really raise awareness and really educate people in this it's sexual harassment is not just about this extreme form it's about this gender harassment as well and it could be part of the kind of the society's message before you know codes of conduct or this is how we want to carry out our climate and our society well some of the societies have been very active yes like AGU some have been very active, and AGU is actually a wonderful example. Um, and some still have some improvement. AAAS uh, is in the process, I hear, yes. of making some bylaws changes that it would be lovely well, to hear it, about. It, it actually, 
I don't know that they're bylaws, but basically really r reflecting on the, the thing that's sitting there. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you do with people who have right. been recognized and honored? Exactly. Yeah. And the National Academy of Sciences that helped, you know, that, that sponsored the committee that wrote the report on sexual harassment in the sciences themselves have been, um, frankly, slow to uh, make the changes needed because they also have honorary members that have been found guilty of sexual harassment. And so I think we need to continue to put that kind of pressure on institutions and say it's not acceptable to say uh, that we will do it and it's not acceptable to say it's hard. <laughs> um, I think what's really important, uh, again, to get at this culture change piece, um, when we are addressing, when we're in a webinar, when we are addressing a mass email to our institute or our society members, we have to understand that the majority of people we are writing to have actually been victimized at some point, right? Just by the stats. And so we need to write as, with that level of compassion. And, with, and that means that we have to validate in our emails. We have to acknowledge institutional harm. We have to take ownership of it and apologize and move forward with what our values are. So if AAAS, if NAS, if AGU and these other professional societies are moving forward with an acknowledgement, we have not acted in our society members' best interests, but here are our values and here's how we're going to try to correct our course. That means that even if, we, even if institutions make mistakes in the future, which they will, at least by stating those values, it allows them to have a place to continue to course correct towards. And that's what I want more institutions to do from my own university, the University of Illinois, to other campuses all over the country, to these professional societies, is they need to state their values. They need to acknowledge their harm, and then they need to just keep trying to course correct towards what they have defined as a community their values are. Let's ask one more question here. Uh, we know, you just basically said, we know that harassment happens, okay? So the, the, po the question here is how well do you, the audience, the viewers, how well do you understand how to get help if you've experienced harassment? Extremely well, very well, moderately well, slightly well, not well at all. Um, and I'll read that again. How well do you understand how to get help if you've experienced harassment? Extremely well, very well, moderately well, slightly well, not well at all. Because there's, there's a question, you know, like when things happen, what then is the response? And it would, you would need to have some kind of guidance uh, with regard to this kind of complex institutional pathways that are, that are used mm -hmm. because there's, there is the need uh, to protect the person who has been harmed, but there is also the requirement to, re to protect the person that is alleged to have done the harm. So you're, right. you're working through this kind of due diligence process mm -hmm. on both sides and trying to address issues of, of being as transparent as you can be at the same time realizing that there are issues that uh, go into areas of confidentiality mm -hmm. but not seeming as though you are tone deaf. Unfortunately, institutions <laughs> are very motivated to uh, protect perpetrators over victims. Um, research has shown that victims are far less litigious than perpetrators. And so when you have 
an alleged victim and an alleged perpetrator, uh, and you try to go through some kind of legal system, the university is going to, in their period of, in their position of being risk averse, they are probably going to find not in favor of the victim. And this has been shown, this is not me just speaking, you know, Cantalupo and Kidder is a really great example. They, they've done really extensive research on Title IX findings at universities. Um, universities tend to not have findings in favor of victims, and those rare times that they find in favor of the perpetrator, uh, the perpetrator sues. And so universities are scared of doing the right thing, even when they know what the right thing is, even when there are wonderful people working in the Office of Diversity, wonderful people working in the Title IX office, they still somehow find more often in favor of the perpetrator than the victim. So what we need to ask ourselves is, um, are those behaviors consistent with the values of that institution? Or are they acting out of fear of a lawsuit? And should we be risking lawsuits in order to actually be um, the moral compass for young people, right? Because so many of us are affiliated with, with uh, higher education. Or are we going to, instead of being a moral compass for our students, are we going to continue to operate out of fear and teach our students that the way we should think about these kinds of things is what's going to cost us the least? Well, do you have similar kinds of, of situations in, in your country? Um, at the University of Geneva, this year, we have a very big advertising campaign about sexual harassment. So now I can say um, we know where we have to address if something like that happens. But uh, the problem is I'm quite sure that people don't know what happened next. And it's what you say. Uh, we are afraid of what, what happened next when we say we are victim of sexual harassment, of gender harassment, how the institution will, will handle the problem. Um, in France, when we had this uh, big congress, it happened that in university, in some university, um, uh, many people uh, want to do something against this huge problem, but we have a real problem of training. Um, people don't know the legal aspect of harassment. People don't know how to, uh, to help the victim. Uh, there, are, there are lots of goodwill, but not many skills to, to do that kind of job. And we have another problem which is quite difficult to, to address. is the problem of harassment between students while they are working for the university, yes. and especially uh, cyber harassment. For example, you have to do um, a group work. You met a WhatsApp group or a Facebook group or whatever, and there is online harassment. So is it a question for the university? Because it's about a group work for the university, but it's online. Everybody is adult, um, it's their private life, but it is harassment and it's very difficult for the student, for the university to, to draw a line, uh, to know what, uh, what is what, uh, who have to, to deal with this problem. And usually teachers say, it's not me, it's not my fault, I, I just give uh, a work group. But if some women withdraw because they can't do this work without being harassed, of course it has a, an impact of their, on their studies. Yeah. We should also, it's interesting to note all of this is that there's usually a lot of power dynamic involved. It's not always the case, but I would say most cases there's also a power dynamic involved. And if you explore a lot of the reporting procedures, it actually goes up the power chain, which really hinders especially students or someone at the kind of the least power to not go forward. So I think 
in addition to understanding where to get help, how to do this, that we need kind of institutional restructuring so that you're not going up the power chain when the problem comes from the power dynamic first. So have a reporting procedure where retaliation is not possible, where you're not reporting to say your department chair or your dean of the problem, you're kind of have a third party independent source that may mitigate some of these effects. You know, at a meeting uh, where I was last week, uh, somebody described science, we were the, and it was a meeting, uh, it was not a meeting about women in science. I mean, obviously, harassment popped up as an issue because it was a, re, a meeting about the health of science. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the person was asked a question, and his response was, unfortunately, within, within science, we have um, an excess of hierarchy, and an excess of unchecked abuse of power. And so it very much dovetails with what you are, you're, are talking about here. And I, one of the things that we talked about, I mean, there are institutional consequences that are in play around harassment, uh, either from one direction or the other, the person who could sue or the person who is basically victimized again or the, the issue of uh, people believing that maybe people look the other way because a person brings in a lot of grants or things like this. So all of a sudden you get an NSF starting to say different kinds of murmurings and it kind of begins to change the attention and the conversation within universities. Right. And in some ways, this is actually a great opportunity for professional societies because part of what I think we're talking about when we talk about hierarchy and um, these abuses of power are in the very nature of how we conceive of science and scientific excellence itself mm -hmm. is that um, you know, when, uh, when we look at admissions for graduate school, we are looking at letters of reference and we're looking at what labs these students are coming out of. When we're, looking, when we're hiring faculty for, or we're hiring postdocs, we're looking at pedigree. Um, and, and again, by pedigree, to some extent, we're looking at institution, but we're looking at which, which lab they came out of, yeah. right? And so when, um, when pedigree matters more than the actual content of your scholarship, um, when positional hierarchy matters more than actual competence and experience, that's when you end up with these unchecked abuses. Yes. And so we need to really start to reconsider Again, what are, what are the best practices in terms of, come, and this is again coming out of the NIS report to some extent, of making better determinations for when hierarchy is justified and when it's not, so that we can flatten hierarchy when it's not needed and come up with more egalitarian systems within the sciences. Because there are absolutely times for safety reasons or expertise reasons when you want there to be some kind of reporting hierarchy, for sure. But then that, that seems to bleed over into many times when it actually is detrimental to the process of science. Well, the results are in here. Uh, how well do you understand how to get help if you've experienced harassment? This is not looking good, people. <laughs> Extremely well, 6.7%. Very well, 16.7%. Moderately well, 43.3% slightly 20%, not well at all, 13.3%. So most people, it's like from moderately to not at all. So we have a major challenge just even in the kind of the structure of helping people understand how you even manage this. And it's because, frankly, we've abdicated responsibility for our science culture 
to these legal systems. And we've said, well, if, we, if your behavior meets this legal definition, we're going to put the entire burden on you as the victim to reporting, to bringing this person to justice, and to making change, right? When really, you know, if you've experienced harassment, there should be bystanders, there should be a community response, there should be best practices that you can draw from in order to make change. And if that were just embedded in our departmental cultures, our institutional cultures, that would be far more effective. It would be far less, um, far less of a burden on victims, right, rather than um, forcing them to go through some, so, some sort of process. And doing that tied with, like you were saying, the third party reporting, it means that you're, again, not forcing the victim to do all the work. You're sort of getting it into the system and then allowing her to actually get back to work, which is what she wanted to do in the first place. Yeah, the, this compliance mentality as opposed to like a preventive situation with regard to policy. And I have a, a, an audience question that speaks absolutely to this. It says, I am a, mem I, uh, a mentor to many undergraduate research students, primarily women. How and when do you recommend discussing these types of harassment issues with students? That is not to scare them away from the field, but to make sure they are aware and empowered. The literature says to do it immediately. I mean, that's, you tell them from the beginning. I mean, uh, Hazari et al. 2010 is the one I'm thinking of right now. Um, this was looking at physics. Uh, but um, the sooner you tell people the reality of the experience, uh, the sooner they can externalize those experiences rather than internalize them. You probably know a lot more about this literature than me. Usually they know it. Uh, um, of course, they are women. So when you work in the street, you know what harassment is. So. Um, if uh, your supervisor or your mentor tells you, uh, I know that it happened at the university, what it proves, it's not, uh, you don't teach anything to the women, you, you just tell, I know that it happened. And uh, she, know, she won't be afraid. She will be reassured because she knew, she, she will know that her mentor know too, not only her. Um, many times uh, women report harassment and men around say, no, you, you experience that? Uh, yes, all the time. Mm -hmm. It's not a surprise for the women, it's a surprise for the men. So we can say it. And I think this is what Me Too movement has done really well, which is to raise awareness, because I think in these kind of lower level, you know, not the full legal harassment, people have internalized it in science. So oftentimes you sit there and you say, well, I think it's just me. And you think no one else is going through this. So you've completely internalized it and you end up leaving science or disengaging. And you know, addressing it right away, you, like you said, it externalizes that it's not you actually, everyone else. And then this is what Me Too movement I think has really brought to the forefront, that people realize, oh wait, everyone else is going through this. They've just managed to hide it just as well as, you know, Everyone else did. Well, I, I want to do a follow-up question because this is one here that I think that uh, we'd all like to speak to about. How can other scientists support women who are experiencing sexual harassment and discrimination even if they are not in a position to impact the women, woman's workplace situation? Believe them. So first thing is believe them. Don't doubt. It's probably completely true. <laughs> it is a first step to recognize it's true and it happens. Even if your colleague is a very nice guy, you think he is a very nice guy, 
Um, and maybe uh, it didn't um, do that on purpose. Maybe he don't realize, okay, I don't care. But believe the woman when she says, he makes me uncomfortable, he does something which is not correct at the workplace. And I think this goes back to bystander intervention training is key because this is where you can step in on behalf of someone, right? So if you see it's very uncomfortable while you're being harassed and maybe you're going through, is this harassment, what's happening? Mm -hmm. But it's easier for you as a bystander to step in and say, oh, just come with me or you can address the other person and say that's inappropriate. So I think that's where the training um, really helps. I think if we had more scripts and we realized, I, if we start to normalize, um, you know, uh, not just calling out, but calling in, right? Um, and, and the other thing about bystander intervention training is most of it is about, like you, like you started with, right? Like um, actually addressing the victim. Not, I think a lot of people think bystander intervention is marching up to the perpetrator and saying, you stop that. But actually a really good way. I know. <laughs> but at, at the same time, though, a really great way to stop that behavior and indicate to the perpetrator that you find that behavior mm -hmm. inappropriate is to um, disrupt it by engaging with the victim, right? Engage with the person who's being harmed in some gentle way or say, oh, hey, I, I meant to talk to you about so-and-so. Exactly. And it just sends a, a very nice signal to that other person that that line of questioning or behavior was not appropriate. Um, and again, that's how you get to culture change, is you take responsibility for when you see behaviors that you don't think are okay. Um, like you said, rather than only, rather than everyone expecting you to do it when you're the victim. And, One you of know, the things that I would hope, though, is that we can shut this down with this generation by actually reaching out to graduate students and po postdocs who are men and helping to make them much more aware and a lot of them are being rewarded by their male yes. PIs to continue yes. to behave in that problematic yes. way. Yes. So we have to take away the reward system of the men in power who are teaching the junior faculty and the postdocs bad behavior. Because unfortunately, right. I'm, I, I'm recently associate, so I'm considered mid-career, and I can still identify many men who are positionally lower than me who are, who are absolutely perpetrating these behaviors every day. Um, and it's because they, they're still being they rewarded. See them. Mm -hmm. And they're being rewarded. Yes, mm. yes. Okay, we have a, another polling question here. How satisfied are you that harassment issues have been handled properly in your department or institution? Very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, neutral, somewhat dissatisfied, very dissatisfied. I'll read this again. How satisfied are you that harassment issues have been handled properly in your department or institution? Very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, neutral, somewhat dissatisfied, or very dissatisfied. It's kind of like no easy way. So, but it would be important to hear what the audience is actually feeling about this about their, the experiences that they're having on the ground. And, and what I would hope in terms of, you know, where we'll move around this in terms of handling harassment issues is I do 
hope that we will move towards better policies um, for when they're happening and how to address them and how to provide swift consequences for perpetrators and swift reintegration for victims because that's the thing that I think gets dropped out a lot is I know a lot of victims who are told, oh, well, we can give you an office way over there in that other building to remove you from the problem. Rather than fixing the problem, they just remove the victim. Um, but what I hope is that we'll also be thinking about prevention and I think we've brought up some really great ways of thinking about that today. Uh, so, um, you know, moving from tokenism to hiring cohorts, um, creating uh, best practices around positive behaviors, um, and, and, you know, uh, having institutions be more compassionate and thoughtful around um, redirecting towards their values and sometimes making the, um, the financially scary but morally correct decisions around some of these things. And I think there's a lot of bonus in the institution and the departments and universities to address this issue. So if you think about it, if you don't have harassment issues, your department is more productive. You're not spending all this money and investigation time um, taking people out of their offices. It's, it's actually exhausting. You don't want this. So what you want is just harassment-free, productive department. And there's lots of evidence showing that Climate is important. If you have a good climate, it costs you less, makes you more productive. So there's a whole financial incentive to this as well. No drama. No drama, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. I think we need more gender lecture in any fields. I mean, not only in uh, um, sociology or psychology, but also in physics, mathematics, etc., etc. I don't know what, uh, how it is considered in America, but in Europe, we tend to consider that um, we, we did many things and things didn't change. So it's a question of nature because now everything is equal. So because everything is equal, if we, don't, if we keep see some, um, some difference, it's, it's, it is biological difference. Uh, we have to say again and say again that there is a discrimination and not a bio biological uh, differences. So we need, I think we need in every faculties, gender lecture to say again, to explain again that discrimination still exists. Yeah, what we have results in. Okay, I'm very excited they're coming faster now. Okay. <laughs> Um, how satisfied are you that harassment issues have been handled properly in your department and institution? 10.7% very satisfied. 3.6% somewhat satisfied. 28.6% neutral. 21.4% somewhat dissatisfied. And drum roll. <laughs> 35.7% very dissatisfied. We, we have a lot of problems out here. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the, um, uh, we're kind of behind the curve uh, in terms of looking at a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that those of us in the sciences tend to think of ourselves as you know, more objective, more logical, more whatever it is, but it's kind of illogical to... <laughs> to really kind of, uh, how can I put this, um, uh, you're disrupting your own talent flow. Mm -hmm. And this actually relates to the, to the other audience question of, uh, are universities really taking measure of the gender gap problem in science? 
because there is a there is a relationship between not having people there and the problems that they may encounter in terms of being attracted into a field, being able to be productive or successful within the field, uh, feeling welcomed within the field, feeling supportive within the field. And what can we do? What, what can uh, an institution or department begin to do uh, about this so that we are not losing this talent, so that we are not, in fact, just kind of throwing, the, throwing away uh, all of this potential? This is, this is where, again, we have to stop focusing so much on compliance. Um, at, at a lot of institutions I know of, when there's a hiring committee, there's an affirmative action officer, and all that person has to do is determine that X number of women have applied for the job or X number of people of color. Um, or, you know, um, they might be encouraged to make sure that the people they bring for on-campus visits, that there's, they've thrown at least one woman in there or something like that. And, um, you know, so that, that means a compliance, you know, there's a compliance issue there that's been met. Oh, well, we, you know, this number of women applied, so therefore we must have had a fair search or we brought one woman of, one woman of four. Um, but if they're still being judged implicitly, then it's still not a fair, it's still not a fair evaluation. And I think this is where kind of expanding the pool really helps applicant pool, even, you know, graduate level, faculty level, because what you find is that some, a lot of these advertisements, we're kind of in our in-group and very narrow set of minds, so the ad goes out or announcement goes out to a very small subset of individuals who only see that, and then you're leaving out this huge gap of kind of intellectual talent, capital that's out there, who never yeah. see know to apply. So I think one way to really mitigate the gender gap is be cognizant of where are you advertising, how are you um, sending your message. There, there's literature and evidence showing that little tiny words in the job ad really impact who's going to apply. So for example, high risk makes women less likely to apply, or even little words like, we're looking for a spokesman instead of, you know, <laughs> spokesperson, things like that. So really be cognizant of that and make sure that you are putting these announcements, uh, putting the announcements out widely so that you're getting everyone who can see it and you have a big pool to start out with. Well, I hate to tell you this, but we're kind of coming close to the end, so I'm going to be kind of speed questioning, all right? Uh, one that I really want to get us to is it says we need to educate men about what harassment is, what appropriate behavior looks like, and how to help colleagues who are experiencing this as well, and how do we envision this as happening? Yes, we have to educate men. And um, when I am going in, for example, in IT, in physics, etc., um, some people tell me we have to sustain girls, to encourage girls, to help girls to be more Yes, okay, if you want uh, to be girl, be more excellent or more courageous, to have exactly the same thing than the men, we have a problem. Um, we have, uh, it to, uh, if we don't want to have victim, we don't have to, it's the best way, it's not to have aggressor. So, uh, okay, we have to support victim, but if we don't have any perpetrators, it will be, better and more efficient. So we have to, <laughs> you agree? <laughs> so we have to teach men how to behave and, and they need to realize that sometimes they don't want to behave badly with women, but their way of um, acting made, made women uncomfortable. 
And it's not, it, maybe it's not so difficult if you admit that, that sometimes you're not as smart or as charming that you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that I've actually seen in some cases are trigger videos. Basically, that you have uh, professional actors uh, basically show behaviors that kind of take you up to a point or even over a point that then can be a part, a, a part of discussion within a department. Because in part of, I think, what the issue is, is that uh, they do exactly what they see being done. And it's not really, they, they may not, in fact, for example, graduate students or postdocs, they may not, in fact, understand where those, where those uh, barriers are, uh, especially if you're coming from a different culture and where the personal space issues may be different, mm -hmm. uh, but there's still the need to confront this. Sure. I mean, though remember, the majority of this, of this harassment is not sexual, but sexist. Mm -hmm. Okay, so most of what's happening here are exclusionary behaviors. So what we really need to be doing is teaching better management skills to scientists, mm -hmm. teaching them a more understanding of power dynamics, and identity, teaching them how to have difficult conversations that don't outgroup or exclude, um, and that don't diminish others. And I think if we if we teach people those skills, that's going to help them engage better with their entire lab group, so that they don't end up seeing women as less competent or pushing them to the side or giving them fewer opportunities. Well, thank you, thank you. You're all very clear in your message. We need better. We need more leadership. We need real clarity here. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for right now. Uh, I want to thank today's panelists, Dr. Kate Clancy, Dr. Anna Hahn, and Dr. Isabel Collet. I also want to thank our viewers and those offering questions. Uh, these are obviously not the last words on this issue. Uh, please look out for more webinars from Science, available at webinar.sciencemag.org. We're interested to know what you thought of the webinar, send us your email at webinar at AAAS.org. Again, thank you to our panel and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship uh, of today's seminar. We appreciate this. We appreciate the opportunity to talk to each other and to engage with you, the viewing audience. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>